Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. With shoppers buying everything online these days, getting those holiday gifts for family and friends is going to be harder than ever. But no need to worry because our friends at Seattle Shirt Company have got us covered. Jay and the team have an unbelievable selection of NFL and NBA jerseys for everyone on your list. These jerseys are 100% authentic, from current superstars like LeBron James to the all-time legends like Jim Brown, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and Walter Payton. Seattle Shirt Company has it all. And right now, for our listeners, we have a special one-time only pre-Black Friday Cyber Monday deal. Everything you buy at seattleshirt.com is 30% off. So head to seattleshirt.com and enter the code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, at checkout for 30% off your entire order. Shipping is always free. Seattle Shirt Company, helping you get ready for the holidays a little bit early. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Welcome to today's episode of the ISO with myself, your host, Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports on the Believe Podcast Network. Today's conversation, longtime head coach at the college level turned Great broadcaster for CBS Sports Network, as well as the home network, CBS Sports. Covers a lot of big games throughout the college basketball season. Become a friend of mine over the last couple years. None other than Coach Steve Lapis. Coach, how's life on the East Coast? And I'm imagining that your golf game is pretty good right about now. It's not like yours. I know when we were in Vegas that day, I saw that swing. It didn't take much for me to know where you were coming from. Now, you're a real player, but... It's good to be on with you, Dan. Sorry to get you up so early today. You know what I mean? You being in the West Coast, me being in the East. But uh, it's a pleasure to be on with you. I remember when you played, how good a player you were. And uh, you're, you're as good, if not better, a broadcaster yourself. So I really value our friendship. And I'm glad I've gotten to know you a little bit over the last few years. Yeah, well, we did spend uh, an afternoon at Top Golf in Las Vegas. And hopefully <laughs> at some point we will get a chance to get a full 18-hole round in at some point. Um, and, and I agree with you in the fact that you're talking about off air before we got going, the need to be flexible with this upcoming college basketball season. Us as broadcasters typically have our schedule right now, and we know where we're going to be for the next four months out of the year and what games we're going to cover, what coaches we need to talk to at certain points to prepare. How do college coaches need to be flexible to prepare right now because of the uncertainty, whether they have a player get a positive, whether they're flushing out the final parts of their schedule? What would your advice be to a college coach right now if they asked you? Well, you know, I think I have some good advice, Dan, because I didn't handle those adversities like injuries and things like that as good as I should have. I remember having days where, you know, somebody would get hurt 
and I would think it's a serious injury and it would just totally take me out of what I was doing that day in practice. So I know what it's like to let those things bother you. And I can tell you this, if I came back and I'm not coming back, I'm way too old to come back now. Um, I would be different. I really would be. So I would like to tell college coaches out there, especially in this situation, it's a pandemic that no one has dealt with before, that you have to be able to roll with the punches. You don't know what's going to happen. You're going to have your season going great. Somebody's going to test positive and it's going to knock you out for two weeks or a week or whatever it is, whatever the protocols are. So you can't get upset. You can't worry about it. You just got to do the best you can. And, you know, I, I actually, uh, there was an article the other day, because I live in the Philadelphia area. There was an article about uh, Villanova and Jay Wright. And his, his attitude is the, the goal this year is not, I'm sure the goal is to win games. I mean, I, I know Jay. Jay wants to win games, there's no doubt about it. But the goal this year is to have these guys just keep them as healthy as we possibly can, play as many games as we possibly can, and then see what happens from there. Well, you mentioned Villanova, and that's where your college coaching career began as an assistant. You had the unique path, something uh, you know that a lot of high school coaches dream about, going from a high school bench, which is where you were from in the New York area, to the college game. You did that. Another recent coach that comes to mind with that similar path would be Nate Oates at Alabama. Did you have a goal as a high school coach to get into the college game, or did it just happen through growing your network within the game? No, I, I wanted to be a college coach from the time I graduated college. That was my goal. And, uh, you know, but I was, uh, not, unlike you, I was just a, 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 a decent Division three player. And so I really didn't know anybody in Division One. had no contacts, had nothing. So I started out coaching in high school. I was a JV coach. Uh, for one year. Then I was a varsity coach at Truman High School. I had Rod Strickland, who you know uh, was a great player, play for me in high school um, for two years, his sophomore and junior year. So, and what I decided to do was I was asking around, how do you, how do you meet people? Because let's face it, networking is a huge part of becoming a college coach or in, in any profession in life, networking is important, as you know. And uh, people say, you got to try to work five-star basketball games. Howard Garfinkel's camp. So that's what I did. I started working at Five Star. I had Rod Strickland, who was a great player. So now I was, people were coming to recruit him. So at least I got to meet them. Not that I was, it was a package deal. It certainly was not a package deal. But um, I got to meet people. I got to meet Roly Massimino through Five Star, through having Rod Strickland. He, he took a liking to me and gave me an opportunity of a lifetime. I would not, uh, if like my son's an assistant coach now, Fairleigh Dickinson. He started out as an assistant, at, as a graduate assistant at Temple. If people ask me, young guys, how do I get into college coaching? I wouldn't tell them to go become high school coaches. I think that's a very difficult route to take. The way to go is internship, volunteer assistant, graduate assistant, hopefully. And obviously, if you played, at least you got a connection to start with with your head coach. You know, uh, just like you had Mark Few, you have a guy like Fuey behind you. That helps you get started if that's what you decide you wanted to do. Now, you decide you didn't want to do that. So I'd say as a high school coach, that's not the way to go. I was very lucky. You know, I love to get my hands on any article or book that I can about the history of basketball and, and five-star basketball camps and Howard Garfinkel has been something that I've read quite a bit about. Being on the West Coast, I never had a chance to be involved and get back there. 
Uh, but I've had conversations with other coaches or broadcasters. Seth Greenberg is one that comes to mind. And he would talk about the sun up to sun down, just the teaching of the game and the passion of the game that every coach had. And they would impart these nuggets of wisdom and different drills to the players. What was that setting like? Because if I'm not mistaken, that was still back in the day where kids would go play on the blacktop at these camps from literally sunup to sundown. Well, then, pre-AAU tournaments in the summer. So five-star was the number one thing that all the great players – I mean, we had a year where it was, a, it was Alonzo morning. We had, you know, Vince – we had the best players. Rashid Wallace, the best players in the country. The all-star game at the end of the week at five-star – Every college coach in America was there. It was big time. Every, the best players and the 20 best players in the country would be playing in that all-star game. So this camp not only drew the best players, look at the people who coached there. You mentioned Seth Greenberg. Rick Pitino started there. Calipari, I met John Calipari 40-some years ago there. Herb Sendek, uh, Jeff Van Gogh. These are all guys that I met at five-star camp. We were all young kids trying to get into the business and the, the list of college coaches that came out of there is ridiculous. But, yes, and how about this one little thing that you'll find interesting? Pete Garfinkel was like a – he was like a vaudevillian. He was like a real character. But one thing about him, you did not work at his camp if you weren't teaching. The games, not that they weren't important, but the most important thing was that morning – with stations, those two hours of stations, he walked around, he watched every single coach and he hired everybody himself. He wasn't hiring anybody that he didn't think wasn't a great teacher. He said, this is a teaching camp. And it was funny because they play games, shirts and skins. They, they didn't even have numbers or anything. And the college coach, I remember being a college coach going there to recruit. And I, I'd say, who's this guy? Because they, they were in shirts and skins and he refused. He absolutely refused, and everybody was telling him, Garf, can't you give these guys shirts with numbers on them? Nope. Shirts and skins. And that's how they played a five-star, shirts and skins. So it was an old-fashioned, old-time teaching camp where that's what everybody took pride in. And you didn't work there if you didn't teach. And I'll never forget them. I mean, Rick Pitino was like 24 years old, and he gave a lecture. I remember I was like, you know, he's a couple years old. I was like 22, 23, whatever. Well, he was 25, and I remember this lecture that he gave, and I was like, damn, how could a guy know that much? I mean, it was an unbelievable lecture. And, uh, the closing day lecture was something that Garf was like, it was like sacred to him. And when he gave me my first closing day lecture, I tell you, I was never more nervous to speak in a camp in front of a group of kids than I was on that closing day lecture when he gave it to me for the first time. So I can't tell you how many kids and how many coaches that camp has helped. Well, it's almost as if the eyes of, of the head man were on you as opposed to the eyes of the people and the players that you were trying to influence at the time. That reminds me of a conversation that I actually just had yesterday with John Stockton, obviously Gonzaga, great Hall of Famer. Uh, he runs a Sunday closed open gym run uh, with some guys here in Spokane. And we were sitting there at the end talking just about basketball and the philosophy of you know all these AAU tournaments and how many games that teams and kids play because my son's an eighth grader right now and we're trying to trying to balance the practicing the teaching the working out versus how many games to go play and he basically had said you know what there's way too many games these kids need to continue to, to work out and they need to continue to play and work on their skills 
but then being in an open gym setting where they learn how to play with others, whether they're older players, younger players, maybe they have to sit for a year while they're shooting on the side and watch the older guys play to learn what works, what doesn't work, how to argue calls, <laughs> how to stand up for yourself, uh, and how to compete. And, and so it's, it's really interesting because I've got a very similar philosophy and trying to balance that right now uh, is difficult because of the, I want the exposure propaganda that's out there from so many entities. Who would have been your favorite player from an outsider? You didn't coach them. Obviously, Rod Strickland was one of my favorites. Who would have been your favorite player to watch as a fan while you were coaching? Allen Iverson. I mean, I, I got to tell you, like, you know, that when I was an assistant, Patrick Ewing was playing at Georgetown. Now, Patrick Ewing was a dominant, dominant college player, but he wasn't nearly the player, that offensive player in college that he was in the pros. He was a dominant defensive player in college, which people don't even realize. But Allen Iverson not only was the most fun to watch, he was the most talented. And I, I'll tell you a funny story. Now, we – and we – we played them twice a year. Now he was, he was there. So I played, I played against him five times, twice during the regular season, two years, and then once in the Big East tournament. And I remember we would have, you know, Scott report naturally, and we're getting ready to go out for the game. And Alvin Williams was playing for me then, who was a pretty good player, played in the NBA for 10 years. And I'm telling the team, I say, Al, now listen, here's what you got to do with Allen Iverson. You got to do this, this, and this, okay? And now go. And they were going out for the game. I turned to my assistant and said, pray that guy misses. <laughs> because <laughs> all that other stuff that you told out, Alvin Williams, wasn't going to do anything. Alvin, that, that was Alan Iverson. You couldn't stop him. You just hope he missed. I had the uh, – well, it was a pleasure in one regards because you get to play against the best players in the world. But I also had the misery of guarding him on multiple occasions. <laughs> and you're right. You know what the scouting report is. If he goes right, he's going to go to the rim. But he's got that unbelievable running hook floater going right. And if he wants to shoot it from 12 feet, he'll shoot it from 12. If he can get all the way to the rim, he's getting to the rack. If he's going left, it's a pull-up jumper. Sometimes it's off a step back. So you know the scattering report. But he was so quick. His handle was so good. And he was so crisp with his, his footwork that you couldn't stop it. It was unbelievable. I couldn't imagine having a game plan like you did for him. Oh, well, you know, one we 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 actually one of our games we played him in the Spectrum. We were both in the top ten that year, and uh, the place is sold out. And uh, the first, so we had a regular, we had two game plans for that game. Start out the game, he's got like nine points in the first, you know, six minutes. I said, that's it. We go boxing one. He scored three points the rest of the game, and I just had one guy, Howard Brown, who was a good player for me. I said, here's what you're going to do. You see, you're going to be in his face from that baseline to that baseline. He goes, well, what about it? Am I supposed to, you know, be, see the ball? No, no, you don't see the ball, don't see nothing. Your job is just one thing. Don't let him touch the ball. You don't even care where the ball is. You don't care where the basket is. You just don't let this guy touch the ball. And he, he got a little frustrated when they win that. But the real story is we played Georgetown two weeks later. He had 35 on us down at their place. So there you go. You kind of set yourself up, I think, for that one. <laughs> yeah, oh, no doubt. <laughs> you, you ticked them off, woke up the sleeping bear for a couple weeks later. <laughs> Your time at Villanova obviously was very important to you. you. You talk about it with a lot of pride every time that we've come across each other. Uh, you started your college career there as an assistant, actually winning uh, a title in 1985 with Raleigh Massimino's group 
before becoming a head coach there later for nine years. So talk about that title year, 1985, you're with Raleigh Massimino. That was the year that Georgetown was the heavy favorite. Some of the best teams in the country were in the Big East. So you have to battle the gauntlet of the Big East throughout the year. You got to prepare, get through the NCAA tournament. And what a lot of people have said is you guys played almost the perfect game in that title game. Share us with share with us some of those experiences or memories from that run. Well, you know, Dan, you, you made a great point. The Big East that year, so we had three teams in the Final Four. It was us, St. John's, and Georgetown. And people don't realize, and the fourth team was that then was called Memphis State, University of Memphis now. And people don't realize that Memphis, they beat Boston College in the Elite Eight by two points, or we would have had four teams from our league in the Final Four that year. So it was an unbelievable league, no doubt about it. And Georgetown had won the title the year before. They were considered one of the best teams in the history of college basketball. And certainly if they had won it in that year against us, they would have won two in a row, but would have been considered one of the best teams in the history of the game. You know, the thing about that game, and everybody calls it like the greatest upset ever, um, it, we really didn't think so, Dan, because we played in the same league. You know what I mean? When you play in the same league with somebody, you, Eddie Pickney, who was our best player, played against Patrick Ewing like nine times in his career and had – Eddie Pickney was a pro. You know, he wasn't Patrick Ewing, but he was a pro. So, I mean, this is a guy who went out and had good games against Patrick Ewing. So, everybody was talking about, well, this is David and Goliath, but they beat us that year twice by like three points. So, I mean, we knew – we, could, we went into that game not thinking we couldn't win. Everybody, the world was upside down when we won. And now let me put it in perspective. We shot 79% and we won by two. <laughs> so that tells you something about how good they were. <laughs> you know, there's no doubt about that. But whereas people like to call it the greatest upset of all time, and I'm, I'm happy they say it, but inside, we really didn't think so. Well, that goes to the true heart of a competitor, always feeling like you are in an opportunity where you can win. And, you know, the fact that you talked about, and I didn't know this, that you had played them tough earlier in the year, um, probably gave you guys a lot of promise, a lot of hope, knowing that, hey, you know what? The pressure's on them. If we just stick to the game plan, adhere to what we do best, we're going to have a chance to win this game. And you're right. I remember as a little kid, I would have been probably seven years old at the time, I remember watching that game, and, yeah, Ed Pinkney had a heck of a game, and, and yeah, he was a pro. And, and I don't think the average fan understands and realizes if you've got a, a pro on a team in that setting, typically they're going to rise to the occasion and have, an, have, a, have a performance that is big time and allows their team an opportunity to win, which obviously he did. Raleigh Massimino, from what I know, was one of the – colorful personalities of college basketball and there were a lot of them in the big east what were your memories like coaching with him he was uh first of all he was a tremendous defensive basketball coach he uh his thing was he was like a mad sign we'd get ready for a game dan and seriously he would do something different every game he was like a mad scientist you, like well, the, the office was his laboratory, the court, well, the court was his laboratory, but he would be getting the experiment ready in his office and we would watch and he, he made all the assistants watch with him. We watched tape after tape. We'd watch seven or eight games, nine games of every team we played 
And in those days, it was a lot harder to get taped than it is today because every game today is on TV. We got the, you know, you got the, all the websites, the synergies and all those people. That didn't exist then. You had to go get the tape, which was my job. When I was the low man on the totem pole, I had to get the tapes and everything else. But we'd watch tape with him, and his goal was to do something in the game that would confuse the other team. He was a matchup zone genius. Like, people talk about matchup zone. No, he started the matchup zone. Now, now maybe he wasn't the first coach because there were some, yeah, obviously some really good coaches before him, but he was a matchup zone genius. And to tell you in a nutshell his philosophy, Dan, in those days zone offense especially was not as sophisticated as it is. And I think right now, like, in, when I first started coaching, people didn't screen in a zone offense. People didn't move a lot in a zone offense. So his goal always was to – Make the other guy think we're playing zone, but we're really playing man-to-man and get them to stand around. And he was so good at that. And I, I'll tell you a quick, quick story. I, I hope I'm not talking too much. Oh, absolutely. I love your stories. So uh, we're, we're getting ready to – I'm doing a broadcast a few years ago at Houston, and James Dickey was the head coach at Houston. Now, James Dickey was an assistant at Kentucky in 1988. My last year as an assistant, we made a run to the Elite Eight. And we played Kentucky in the Sweet 16 game. And so James Dickey was an assistant. So I tell Andrew Catalan, we're going to the shoot-around now. This is 30 years later. I said, watch, Andrew. The first thing James Dickey's going to tell me is, who I hadn't seen in like 10 years, but every time I saw him, he said it. He said, I said, Andrew, you watch. The first thing James Dickey's going to tell me was, we had no idea what you guys were doing in 1988. (laughs) I swear to God. So we go up to James Dickey and say, hey, Jay, Steve, how are you? Boy, we had no idea what you were doing in 1988. The first thing out of his mouth. Now, Eddie Sutton was the coach. They were obviously that Rex Chapman. They had a great team. And we beat them that game. And we had a defense that they were just standing around looking at each other. And obviously, Eddie Sutton was a great coach, as we know. Um, but that's what Rolling Massimino was about. And everybody knew. And if he played you and you weren't, you were like you didn't know him. Like the league games were harder because everybody knows each other, kind of know. But when he played somebody from outside the area, they were in big trouble. That was him. <laughs> I love that game prep and just the ability for for a coach to pull something out of his back pocket, uh, as you mentioned, or have a zone defense that was skewed to look like man to really confuse an opponent. And I think the best coaches are always doing something, as you mentioned, to keep the opponent off balance and kind of guessing what they're doing. You go from assistant coach at Villanova, you get your shot at Manhattan, you do a really nice job building that program up, and then you get called back home, which I can only imagine felt like home to Villanova. You were the head coach for nine years. You had a a tremendous amount of success, seven years in the postseason. At what point of your career did you know you were ready then to be a head coach, but then also a head coach at a place that was so special to you like Villanova? Well, you know, here's where the high school thing helped. You know, I was very lucky, Dan. I was only an assistant for four years, um, which a lot of people are assistants for a lot longer than that. Here's where the high school part helped. I I didn't feel in awe of being the guy that had to make the decisions or run the practice. So even though it's high school is way, way different than college, there's no question about it. There's there's not the scouting. There's not the film. No doubt. It's, it's night and day, but, the one thing that is the same is you're in charge. You got to discipline. You got to get guys to play hard. You got to run a practice. You got to call a timeout. 
you got to do those things. So I was not, I didn't feel, now I was 34 years old when I got the head job in Manhattan. I did not feel like this is something I could, I felt like this is what I do. This is what I am. I'm a coach. And so I was not in awe. Now, just to put it in perspective, I think people see that Manhattan has been a program that has done some great things over the years. When I got there, they hadn't been to the NCAA tournament since 1954. And they had won, they had averaged seven wins a year for 10 years. It was considered the worst job in the country. Rolly Massimino told me I was crazy to take the job. Now I grew up 10 minutes from there in, in, uh, I grew up in Manhattan and, uh, uh, Manhattan College is in the Bronx, actually. It's not in Manhattan. Um, so I felt like I could do something here. And my last year, we won 25 games. We lost at the buzzer to go to the NCAA tournament to LaSalle. Uh, and so we didn't get to the NCAA tournament, which is the one thing that, that always bothers me about me. And Fran Priscilla took over for me the next year, and they did go to the NCAA tournament. The whole team was back. The entire team was back the next year, and Fran – did a great job and took them to the NCAA tournament. So we went from seven wins to 25 wins in four years. And uh, I got the opportunity at Villanova. You know, it was one of those things where I never thought Coach Massimino would ever leave Villanova. He decided to leave to go to UNLV. I was shocked. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, a funny story is he calls me from Steve Wynn's plane. So Steve Wynn was running the search at UNLV. And he says, hey, Lap. It's like two o'clock in the morning. He said, hey, Lap, I'm taking the Vegas job. So I said, I was like, I'm sleeping, obviously. I said, coach, come on. We just, I mean, you got to call me two o'clock in the morning and start joking around like that. Because he loved calling you at like three o'clock in the morning because he loved to hang out, eat, and whatever. So I said, coach, come on, no way. Jay was on the pl- Jay Wright was on the flight with him. He said, here, Jay, tell Lap. Jay gets on with me and goes, Lap, he's taking the Vegas job. I said, Tell him he's crazy. You, you coach at Villanova. Now, I'm not saying, you know, UNLV obviously is a great – it's a little different kind of uh, school, you know what I mean, in a lot of ways. I said, coach, you know, he was always a guy that was, you know, in a small school. Um, not that academics aren't important at UNLV. I'm sure they are. But, you know, Villanova is a little Catholic school. And so I was surprised when he left. And so the opportunity came along. It was like a dream come true for me. I mean, you, you think about it, four years – before that, I was an assistant. Eight years before that, I was a high school coach. So to get this opportunity, you know what? It, I, and I say this all the time, Dan. People say, well, you know, Manhattan hired Steve Lapis. I said, no, no, no. Manhattan didn't hire Steve Lapis. Manhattan hired Roly Massimino's assistant. So you got on this. So it, it's like, yeah, to be associated with a Roly Massimino assistant. I could have been, you know, John Smith could have been anybody. But that's who they hired. So they didn't hire Steve Lapis. You know, I happen to be the guy who's there, but they hired Roly Massimino's assistant. This is what people do. They hire Duke assistants. Not to say that the Duke assistants aren't good or, or the Gonzaga assistants aren't good. Of course they're good. But they want to hire Mark Hughes' assistant. And it could be you, me, could be anybody. You get that opportunity, and then you got to, you know, get lucky. You always need some luck in this game and make the most of it. Well, it goes along the lines of a lot of what we talked about earlier in the conversation is your network, whatever industry you're in. You know, with the network that you're in at that particular time, are you helping that coach who might be your boss have success? And if they are having success, that's going to provide and, and bring opportunities for you, which then obviously you took advantage and, and you ran with and, and created your own opportunities you mentioned Jay Wright on the, on the plane ride with Roly Massimino in Vegas. He was an assistant under you at Villanova. 
Not under, we were together. I was the top assistant at that time. That's right. My, my last year at Villanova, I was the top assistant. And Jay came in. He was the, the first, the bottom assistant at that time in 1987-88. So you've seen Jay Wright from a very early start in his coaching career to now being one of the best in the business. Two NCAA titles, I believe 2016 and 2018 at Villanova. What separates Jay Wright from, from being a good coach to what he is as a great coach? I think one of the things is he knows exactly what he wants to do and he has the utmost confidence that what he wants to do is good. And I give you an example. So, you know, my last year at Villanova, we're like a bubble team. And we used to talk all the time back in those days. Jay was the head coach at Hofstra at the time. And I'll never forget, he told me something that I thought was really strange. He calls me up on the phone. He says, hey, do yourself a favor. <coughs> I said, what's that? He says, don't listen to a word your assistants tell you. I said, really? And I, and I had good assistants. He had good assistants. He said, don't listen to a word they tell you. He says, I know when you're going through like up and, and we were up and down and, you know, we were a bubble team and you can't really be on the bubble if you're a Villanova. That's one thing. And, you know, we had some injuries, some things happened, but that was his advice. His advice was don't listen to what your assistants tell you. So I think he has a tremendous amount of confidence in what he does. He's a great communicator in what he does. And uh, he's very demanding. But the one thing that I've seen from them, Dan, I don't know if I've ever told you this, but that always as a coach, boy, you strive for that. It's, it's getting guys to play on that fine line of I'm as confident as I can be, but I'm not overconfident. I think they've taken – they take some shots from the perimeter that I say, that's not a good – I mean, that's not a good – like, to me, when I was coach, I wouldn't let a guy take that shot. But they make them. So I think he has been able to impart on his team that thing that every coach looks for. Getting a guy to be the ultimate in confidence, but not overconfident. And when you can have a team that plays that way, that play hard too, don't get me wrong, but that plays with that kind of, um, I don't know what the word is even. It's, it's hard for me to imagine, but I, I, I see them do things that are like, boy, I guess he thinks they can do that. And to me, it looks like that's a tough shot. But they do what they do, and they are so confident, but they always respect the opponent and play hard. So I, it, it's some really good coaching, I can tell you that. That's, a, that's an unbelievable way to put it in, in how he builds confidence in his players and empowers them to go out and make plays. So similar to Coach Few, because I remember as a player, when I was at University of Washington, I had hesitancy in my game. I get to Gonzaga, I transfer, I sit out my redshirt year, and Coach Few spent that year, quote unquote, building that confidence back up in me, allowing me to see where my strengths lied, know where my weaknesses were, to begin to work on my weaknesses and try to rough, roughen those edges out a little bit or smooth those edges out. And the best coaches do exactly what you just talked about. They get their players to play with a confidence that they can do it, but not an overconfidence where they don't respect their opponent or they don't play hard. Uh, because I think that's a big part of it. If you're overconfident, you're not going to play hard. If you're walking that line, that edge, 
you're going to respect your opponent. You're going to play hard. And that's a great way to put it, Coach. They walk that line, Dan. And, you know, I think every coach, and, and it, I, I, I can see where Mark Few has that also. And obviously to be a great coach, that's – but I, I think there's a lot of great coaches that – that, that's struggled to find that line and certainly don't have that line every year. And it seems to me like in the last seven, eight years, especially now the truth is Villanova left them alone. I mean, his first three years, he didn't make the NCAA tournament. Um, and then they got, you know, and then they had a little lull in the like 2011, 12, there was a little bit of a lull losing year, whatever, then knocked out early in the tournament. And now, you know, they've allowed him to mature and, not that he needed maturity, but to mature as a coach, which, you know, takes some time and uh, develop and become what he's become. Well, credit to Villanova athletic department and director for, for doing that, because unfortunately, you know, I think there's too many athletic departments that go through the churn cycle with coaches too quickly. They don't allow, and they don't allow a, a coach to fully implement their philosophy. And in this day and age with the transfers and all these different waivers, it's difficult. It can take coaches a little bit of time to figure out the nuances of getting around these rules and how to build your roster. But I want to go back to your time as a coach in the Big East because there were a lot of really good coaches, Karnaseka, uh, John Thompson, Jim Beheim, who's still coaching. And that's who I want to talk about. I think the, the biggest tragedy in youth basketball these days is youth zone defense. I understand it. Once you get to a high school level and a college level, it can be used as such a, a advantage. But those players are typically older, and you've been taught enough to be able to play it or attack a zone on the offensive end. How would you prepare for the Syracuse zone defense? Well, you know, well, we, we had some pretty good success against Syracuse. Um, now, we had – we. We, you know, obviously we had three-point shooting in those days when I was coaching, but we had two of the best three-point shooters in the nation probably at one time in Kerry Kittles and Eric Eber, so that helped. And uh, I always felt you could get good shots against them, you know, but you had to have guys that could make threes, and you had to have pretty good offensive rebounding because Jim's teams have been at the bottom of the defensive rebounding percentages for years. And Typically, out of a zone, it's difficult to defensive rebound, as you know, but they have been historically bad at defensive rebounding. So hitting the offensive glass, you needed to attack them at the foul line area. And I watch teams play against them all the time, and I'm saying, these guys got to get the ball to the foul line because if you don't, if you allow them to stay spread. Now, the truth is, he's, Jim knows what to recruit. He's a tremendous recruiter. He gets guys out front that play the top of that zone that are long and athletic, and that makes it difficult, no doubt about it. But you've got to get the ball into the foul line area, and you've got to get the ball to the short corner. And when we, when we would get ready to play Syracuse, I would tell my guys, okay, I put the 30 – it was a 35-second clock then. I put the 35-second at 25 because you've got 10 seconds to get the ball up, and I'd say, okay, we're playing against Syracuse zone. You are not allowed to take a shot unless the ball goes to the foul line once and to the short corner once in this possession. So you got 20 set, you got 25, 24 seconds to get off a good shot. But before you shoot that ball, I better see it go to the foul line once and the short corner. And that's how we practiced for two or three days leading up to that game. They were not allowed to take a shot unless that ball touched those two areas every single possession. 
and the other thing that we spent a lot of time on against them because because they they are historically out of a zone you wouldn't think this one of the steel leaders in the country so they're very aggressive they obviously have long athletic guys so the other thing that i would tell them is you can't you have to have at least three pass fakes every time in this possession so between pass faking getting it to the foul line getting it to the short corner you kind of at least have a you instill confidence in your guys that if we use these things, we're going to get good shots and we're going to be able to win. And that's kind of how we used to approach, you know, playing them. But the other thing about them was they were also very good offensively. I know you talk about the two, three zone, no doubt that's part of it, but you had to stop them too. That was a hard part. Yeah. I love it. And just hearing you describe that practice plan shows that, you know, you had a plan to attack that zone and it sounds like more times than not, it worked. And I'm going to file that away as I coach my son's team because I've always believed in the short corner and, and getting to the nail area against the zone. But the drill of working against it in practice where you have to get to those two spots uh, each possession is something that I'm going to steal, which hopefully means I'm an okay coach because all good <laughs> coaches steal things from other coaches. No doubt about it. And you know what, Dan? The bottom line is you still got to make the shots. And a lot of times you you got to evaluate what you did based on the quality of the shots and not so much whether you scored or not. You know what I mean? If you're getting good shots, you, you still got to make them. And if you don't make them, you don't make them, you're going to lose. But it leads to quality shots. You like to show that. And maybe at that point then, if they're not making shots, we're just going to take shots all next practice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I learned that at a young age is, is if you can put the ball in the basket, there's always going to be a place for you. Uh, on any team because everybody needs a shooter last question coach before I let you go this is the time of year that you and I as broadcasters begin to do a lot of reading we get the uh the college blue ribbon basketball yearbook and read it cover to cover you've got all the the magazines that are coming out with their different predictions we start going to practices talking to coaches different broadcasters for their take who do you like in this topsy-turvy college basketball season this year? Well, I'm, I'm feeling your boys out there in Spokane a lot, I can tell you that. And, you know, it's funny. Every I've been saying this, and I've told you this story, and I'm sorry again to, to, to go on, but we're playing in Maui in uh, 2001, I think it was, maybe 2002, and you guys were out there. And so I'm watching. Real, uh, real quick disclaimer. Uh, my senior year was 0102. We had to go to Alaska for the Great Alaska Shootout. <laughs> so it would have been the following year after I was gone and a rookie in the NBA, they get to go to the Maui Invitational. All right. So I, it was that year, and I'm watching them play. We, were, I, we, I was at UMass. It was my first or second. It was my second year at UMass, I believe. We were playing. We played. We were playing Indiana in the first round, and I think Gonzaga was playing Virginia. I think. So, I, I don't know. I, I, anyway, so I'm sitting in the stands watching, and all of a sudden this guy comes in the game for Gonzaga, and I'm like, where did he get this guy? And now, this was before Gonzaga really – you guys were coming as Gonzaga. It really, you know what I'm saying? It was – you know when this was. So, you weren't what you are now, you know what I mean, where you're like can win a championship, you're as good as any program in the country. You were this little school that – is like trying to make it into the big time here from the West Coast Conference, you know? So anyway, I'm looking at this guy coming in the game. It's Ronnie Turiaf. And I'm like, whoa, where they get a guy like this 
I mean, this is, this, I'm not saying they're not good, but I mean, come on, we can't get a guy like that in the Atlantic 10? Where'd they get that guy? Well, my sister, he's, well, he's from France. I said, they always have big guys like that. So now the, the, the reason for the story is, I mean, I think of Sacre, Elias Harris, Karnowski. Uh, I mean, I could, the Turioff, um, the, what was his name? Violet, what was the kid's name yeah, that was there right. with you? Yeah. yeah, I'm just like, and now they got, they have, so now I tell Mark few last year. So you have Collins, right? Collins was on two years ago, right? Yeah. So I had your game in the NCAA tournament. Uh, I, I would say your game, but you know what I mean, your yeah. game, because that's your school. So I, I had them in the NCAA tournament. So I say to, uh, uh, I say to Fury, I said, uh, Mark, I'll tell you what. This guy, Collins, this guy, Petrusive. I watched him play like a couple, he got into this game for a couple of minutes. I said, Mark, this guy, Petrusive, is going to be like unbelievable. He's like, come on, Steve. I think he's a little soft. He's a little this, that. Now, this is two years ago. Last year, he does what he does. And now I have your game last year against somebody, and I see this guy, Timmy. And I'm like, who is this? Yes. The big guys that you guys have had. Now, that you didn't have great guards like you, but I'm like, where do they find these guys that are all they're pros? And now this Timmy's going to be right. So, make a long story short, I think Gonzaga's going to be really good. I have not seen Suggs. Have you seen him much at all, this kid? Just on film, um, I've I heard glowing reports for, for summer and early fall workouts. I mean, you're talking top 10 player uh, goes to Gonzaga. I mean, that's unheard of if you – would have looked at it would if you would have said that question 10 years ago somebody would have thought you're crazy yeah and now and then you got Kispert and Ajayi and now Timmy who I think is going to make a huge step so I think they're really good Baylor obviously returns a lot from a team that had a great year last year <laughs> and my boys down the block here Villanova I mean they lose Sadiq Bay but they've got you know uh, uh, Earl Robinson Earl back they've got I'll tell you what how about this Dan Colin Gillespie in September of his senior year, had only Division II offers. This guy might – he's like one in the top – he probably won't be, but he's in the top ten in the preseason for guys that could be the player of the year in the country. I'm not saying he's going to be. I mean, I think Garza's going to be, if I had to guess, but he's in the list. So, I mean and – and they had this kid from Tulane, Caleb Daniels. Look out for him. He's a transfer from Tulane who is tremendous – plays hard, and then they had this Brian Antoine last year who was in the top 10 coming in, top 20, he hurt his shoulder, didn't play at all, so they're going to be really good also. And then Virginia, Michigan State, you know what I mean, but I, I'm going to say those are my top three. Uh, Baylor, not in that order, I think Gonzaga, Baylor, Villanova. Well, you mentioned Colin Gillespie not having uh, Division One offers early in his senior year of high school. I think that goes back to a, a coaching staff led by Jay Wright that understands what they want in a player and what they value and seeing what others don't and not being misled by other people's judgment. That happens way too many times in evaluation of, of young players uh, by college coaching staffs. And I'll, I'll leave you with this coach, because I know I've taken a lot of your time today. If Gonzaga and Villanova are matched up in the title game, we will have a side bet of some sort, whether it's for dinner, whether it's for a round of golf, um, I, I definitely will say that. And, and hopefully it comes true. And uh, hopefully that you are paying for the bill of whatever it ends up being. You're on for that, Dan, for sure. But let me say this 
one last thing. I think Mark Few is one of the not forget about basketball coach. I think he's one of the great guys in this game, and we need guys like him. And so I just wanted to leave you with that. That I've known Mark for a long time. On his first Nike trip, I believe we played golf together. He had never golfed before. I don't think before that. And how about this? He was better than me that day, and he had never golfed. And uh, but he is one of the great coaches, great guys. And I I I would love to see Mark Few win a national title. And I'm not saying I want him to beat Villanova, but I'll tell you this: I want to see Mark Few win a national title. I think he deserves it. Absolutely, as would I, as a former Gonzaga Bulldog who holds that program dear to my heart. So, Coach Lapis, I appreciate the time. It's been great to connect, and and I can't wait for the college season to start because I know at some point our paths always cross. So, thanks again for joining. This has been the ISO with Dan Dickow for SB Live Sports. The ISO with Dan Dickow and SB Live Sports, brought to you by the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.